0: everyone and welcome to the next episode of SAFE Speaks, a podcast brought to you by sexual assault peer educators. SAFE is a student group committed to educating the Georgetown community about interpersonal violence and supporting survivors of sexual assault. SAFE hopes that this collection of conversations will encourage, support, educate, and inspire necessary dialogue in the Georgetown community. As a content note, issues of sexual assault and other forms of interpersonal violence will be explored and discussed please prioritize your well-being while listening to these podcast episodes. We want to remind listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are a representation of the speakers themselves, and not all reflect those of SAFE, Health Education Services, or Georgetown. With all of that, let's dive into today's episode. Um, First, before getting started, I'm going to quickly introduce myself. Once again, hi, everyone. My name is Esme Kalbag. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm a junior in the SFS studying STEA with a concentration in global health on the pre-med track. And this upcoming year will be my third year as a fellow with SAPE. Today, I am with Val and Britt, who both work at Health Education Services at Georgetown, as well as helping to run the Sape program. Uh, we want this episode to sort of serve as a Q&A that covers some of the frequently asked questions that come up during SAPE facilitations, as well as covering the various resources available to students as we return to campus in the coming weeks. Um, Before diving in, Val and Britt, well, hi, first of all, um, (laughs) welcome to SAFE Speaks. Could you quickly introduce yourselves and kind of speak on what your roles are within health ed and SAFE?
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us on today. Hi, everyone. My name is Val Tovar Malloy. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am the Associate Director of Sexual Assault Response and Prevention for Diversity and Inclusion with Health Ed at Georgetown really long title. It basically just means that um, I advocate for students. I work a lot with DEI um, and anti-racist practices. Um, I also do a lot of programming and so I'm really excited to be here and just be able to um, shed some light and some ans- and give some answers to some of your questions. How about you, Britt?
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Britt Egan. I use she, her pronouns. I also work in health ed with Val. Um, Georgetown is a fan of those long titles. My title is Staff Clinician and Sexual Assault Specialist. Which is a long title just to that basically means I meet with survivors um, who've experienced some type of interpersonal violence. And it's my job to help them navigate the systems that be, um, help them decide what resources that are applicable to them and that they're interested in, and just help them get the support that they need. I also do a lot of programming and prevention work around these types of topics, including sexual violence, partner violence, stalking, things like that. I am just grateful to be here and like thank you so much Esme for including us in this episode. I know we've been working with you the last year on the development of this and so we're excited to be able to join you today. We love our work in safe and we love advising you on, and all the safe students on your incredible initiatives. So since we're upcoming a new school year which like wow How did that happen? Like you are weeks away from the school year starting. Um, And we likely have some new listeners. Esme, can you share a little bit about like your experience in SAPE, what SAPE is in case some of our new listeners are interested in getting involved? Yeah, of course. Um, Well, both of you feel free to
0: chime in whenever you want um, because you have just as much to say about what SAPE is as I do. Um, But I think a lot like the title of SAPE is kind of true to what we do as sexual assault peer educators. Um, We're a peer resource for both for educating students about what sexual violence is, what sexual violence looks like on campus, and then also how to be, uh, how to support someone who's a survivor of sexual violence. And we like we ourselves serve as a support system for survivors of sexual violence and interpersonal violence, whatever it may look like. Um, And primarily We haven't been able to do this for the past year since we've been in a completely virtual environment, sadly, but hopefully it will start picking up as we return to campus in a couple of weeks. But we primarily host facilitations with clubs and organizations on campus and just hold conversations about what sexual violence is, what consent is, cover some of the frequently asked questions that I'm gonna ask you today. So just going through and just facilitating conversations and inspiring dialogue on campus. That's
2: primarily what we do as an organization. And you all do an amazing job. <laughs> yes, you. I've done some incredible work this year. I know you, you all brought a speaker to campus, mm-hmm. you developed this podcast, right? Like y'all, y'all do some incredible work.
0: Thank <laughs> you.
2: Couldn't do it without you guys,
0: just gotta say that. <laughs> um, okay, well, first to get started, uh, just to cover a general question, what, what is sexual violence? How would you define sexual violence? I know at SAFE, we refer to it as an umbrella term, but what exactly does that mean? What does that look like?
2: You wanna yeah. start us off for it? Sure, great question. So sexual violence refers um, to any sexual activity where consent is not obtained or cannot be freely given. Um, And we say it's an umbrella term because there are several things that fall under that that term sexual violence, right? Like, you know, thinking about things like sexual assault, catcalling, rape, harassment, um, coercion, right? Sending pictures uh, of sexual nature without somebody's consent, um, drug facilitated sexual assault. All of those things fall under this umbrella. And when I kind of think about the umbrella, I'm thinking about all of these these acts that attack somebody's safety or their agency, their autonomy, their sexuality, like their body um, and their feelings of safety.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of different um, aspects of sexual violence. And when we think about that, you know, like Brittany did a bunch of them. Um, And we also think about like, when when we talk about consent, that's something that we do in everyday life. And I think that we usually only kind of tie consent to sex and to sexual acts. Um, however, we practice consent in everyday life, you know, whether it is, you know, asking for a favor, uh, whether it's, you know, asking if a, you know, a chair is even taken, like things like that, like before we take it, um, you know, so there's different things that we do every day. Um, and so when we think about, especially with sexual like acts, that's something that we need to have in order to move forward, right? Like, so when we talk about consent, it's asking um, the question of a capable person with adequate disclosure without coercion. Um, so that's without, you know, asking so many times that somebody is just so overwhelmed and says, yes, you know, that's not, that's not consensual. Um, So when we think about um, sexual violence and that kind of a scope as well, um, we need to have those things hand in hand, right? Like consent and also that open communication where things can change, even if, um, you know, even if it's the same person that you're engaging, you know, with sex with.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I like that you brought that up at the end, Val, about even if it's with the same person, because I think whenever we're having presentations, something that can surprise people about consent is that it's continual, like you're Mm -hmm. constantly, and we ask for consent in our daily lives all the time, um, even if we don't think about it, but that consent is continuous, so just that just because someone consented to something two days ago or a week ago doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to consent in this instance, like mm-hmm. it's, it's continuous. You constantly have to be asking for consent. Um, so it's just a negotiation that's continually happening.
2: Um, yeah. And I mean, I think about that even when it comes to like ordering food, right? Like just because you know somebody's order, you still are asking for consent all the time when you're like, hey, what what do y'all want on the pizza tonight, (laughs) right? Like you're asking that each time, Um, even though you might think you know the answer, you have a good idea of like what their favorite order is, it's still like, do you want pizza or Chinese tonight? Like you're asking those types of questions. Mm -hmm. You know, and the other other pieces of that, that definition that I know get brought up in conversations I'm a part of are that, that idea of like a capable person Mm -hmm. and then also of adequate disclosure. And so I'm curious, you know, from both of you, like, what do you all think of when you think of like, what makes somebody capable or not capable? And then if you have any thoughts on that adequate disclosure, like what are the things we should be chatting about when we're talking about consent?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think for this one, especially with, um, when we think of a capable person, like um, it's easy to, to kind of like, you know, think like, well, what's not capable? Like, obviously we think like, you know, drugs, alcohol use, you know, things like that, um, which yes, like those also can alternate a lot of things. However, um, the first thing that I really try to like, encourage students to think of it also like that power base, right? Like that dynamic. Um, so like, if somebody is in charge of you, like, because they're a supervisor, um, or if somebody, if you're in charge of somebody, because you're maybe a peer leader, you know, like, that's a dynamic in power, um, and I think that's one that kind of gets left out of conversations a lot, um, so that's one of the ones I really encourage students to think about, um, as we go into these topics.
0: I love that you bring up power dynamics, too, just because of club culture at Georgetown, and how, how important, and how much of an, like, that's just what, Georgetown's social life is mm-hmm. like, it's just club culture. Um, and that how power dynamics can come up in that, and that someone who you're working with on a peer basis who might have a, like position above you on like a board of a club or an organization, if you're mm-hmm. in both a, like professional business setting in the club, but mm-hmm. also if you're like going out with people in the club, out, like after classes or going out on the weekend, like when drugs and alcohol get involved, like it blurs those dynamics. There's Mm -hmm. a clear power balance. There's a clear power dynamic inherent in the club, but once drugs and alcohol get involved, it can become very fuzzy. Um, Mm -hmm. So just remembering, recognizing power balances and recognizing power dynamics and how that's inherent in consent and sexual assault,
2: especially on college campuses and especially at Georgetown. Yeah, such a great point. And then for the adequate disclosure piece, uh, you know, I think a lot about like, what are our conversations around, um, STI, like what yeah. are we talking about? Right? Are we disclosing our status? Are we both getting tested? Um, right? Like consent around those types of things, and like how how you're engaging in that dialogue, I think is just another important thing I'll throw out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And then I also
0: just thinking about what comes up during facilitations, I think often students are familiar with identifying dating violence and signs of dating violence, Um, but something that comes up that is less known is the cycle of abuse. So could you like both quickly just talk through what exactly that is? What like what's the definition of the cycle of abuse? What does it look like?
1: yeah so that's also a really good um like segue into i think even like when we start talking about like other aspects of the umbrella um because when we think about, you know, like the cycle of abuse really illustrates like a common, like common phrases that we hear all the time, right? Like an abusive relationship kind of moves through these phases of like a honeymoon phase, like everything is wonderful, Um, but then there's like something happens, like there's a lot of tension building um, and a lot of like that walking on eggshells, um, feeling like you can't share certain things without somebody getting upset or hurt. Um, And then the explosive phase, right? So this is also where like that abuse occurs. Like this can be physical, it can be sexual, emotional. Um, A lot of times it can also be humiliation. Like that's something that we think about um, that we see a lot, especially with college students. Like it can look kind of like, you know, excuse my French, but even like the ship, the ship posting, right? Like we talk about that a lot. And we see that a lot within like social media. Um, But that also can go hand in hand with like, kind of like a cycle of abuse, like that could also be something um, that happens in this phase. Um, And then with each of these phases, there's always like that, period of calmness right like where things are now have blown up things are now calm um, and then that kind of can go either way like you can either have a long period of time where nothing happens again or it can be really short and like the next day you're like you know back in like this cycle again um and so I think another thing um, that's important to remember is that um, when we talk about this type of cycle of abuse this can also be with hookups Um, This can be like, you know, if you just know somebody, you have that type of relationship with them where you hook up, maybe your friends with benefits, but that you can still have a cycle of abuse that happens in that situation, in those situations. Um, Maybe, maybe somebody is being malicious. Maybe somebody only wants to, you know, um, experience certain things um with you but then at the same time they're not like you know they're treating you poorly you know so like that's a whole other thing too that um I think sometimes we get kind of cornered thinking that this is only for like long-term relationships but this can be anything from hookups this can also be um friends with benefits this can be you know just starting to date there's so many different you know relationships that can go through the cycle of abuse
0: yeah yeah thank you for bringing up that it applies to whatever relationship looks like
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's like um, a misconception when we think about like dating violence is we we have this like image that is shown to us, you know, via media that like the the violent relationship is always violent and it's always physical and it's like starts out that way. But often um, relationships that are violent start out like with love bombing and start Mm -hmm. out like really incredible. Most people, they'll describe it as like the most incredible relationship, Mm -hmm. the most love they've ever felt in their entire life, Mm -hmm. right? And so what gets really tricky then for survivors um, of dating violence is they're comparing now their current reality and the current cycle that are experiencing to that love bombing phase, right? They're like, yeah. right, I hear you, but like, you don't know how incredible this person is. Like, you don't know what I experienced with them. And, and so that's another piece I think that is part of the puzzle and to understand uh, dating violence when we think about it you know, on our campus at Georgetown, mm-hmm. it is, there is that, that disconnect. There is that um, time period where everything is wonderful. And so then when this cycle starts, it becomes really confusing,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Because
2: then we're like, wait, now I'm having this, like, I'm walking on eggshells all the time. I feel unsafe to share my opinion. Um, but I know that they're incredible because I've witnessed it. And so yeah. how do I make sense of that? Um, so that's another piece I would just add.
0: Yeah, thinking of, cause you mentioned like, how does this look like on campus specifically? Um, just looking at like another umbrella term that comes under sexual violence and interpersonal violence and also that ties directly to uh, the cycle of abuse is it's stalking. Um, and I think there's a misconception that stalking isn't as frequent as it is. Um, so, how common is stalking actually on Georgetown's campus? Just looking like statistically, how common is it?
2: Yeah. Great question, Esme. So great. Um, especially because this is not a topic that we spend a ton of time on. I mean, I think that uh, this is often maybe the topic that that moves to the back burner. And so yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, we actually did a sexual misconduct survey, Georgetown did, not not Britt did, but the Georgetown <laughs> community did, um, in 2019. And so you can find all of that information online um, regarding like the prevalence of all these different types of issues on our campus, and and they had found that. Um, 14.2 students reported being stalked since enrolling, um, which was a little bit lower than the the national average, but not by a ton. And then when we broke that down, those statistics a little bit further, um, of those those people who reported being stalked, it was, um, you know, 25% undergraduate women, uh, 16.9% undergraduate men, and then grad students made up the rest of that. Uh, but when we're looking at these numbers, um, sadly, I think they're probably lower than what is actually happening um, because stalking is not so commonly discussed. And so a lot of us don't have this clear understanding of like what stalking is or what it means. And so, you know, kind of throwing that out to the group, like, what do you think of when you think of stalking behavior? Like what what comes to mind for you?
0: Hmm. well first before getting into that um just speaking of the sexual misconduct survey also in the show notes the link to the sexual misconduct survey all the data from that will be available so feel free to check that out um but Val what do you think of when you think of stalking
1: yes so with stalking um I think the main characteristic that always comes to me is fear um it's like immense fear like over like that would be over like even like just a reasonable person um so like a fear of being followed a fear of being watched a fear of um not being safe all the time Um, and I think um that can come in many different forms like that can be like you know if someone's physically like around you all the time but then we also think about like um like social media so Um, you can be terrified to even like open a message you know because maybe the same person has been bombarding you with messages over and over that are very um, racist or very sexist or you know take you know take your pick of whatever you want to fill that in the blank Um, and that could cause uh, so much fear that you don't even want to like go on social media you don't even want to check anything because that person might see you Um, and so um, we got to really also understand that the technological piece of this has really taken shape, especially over 2020.
0: Yeah. Just speaking of the, like the technological piece, it, how, and that, how that feeds into how common stalking is. Um, I just know like a lot of people might have their location on SnapMaps and that makes it, if someone has like, is friends with you on Snapchat, then they're able to see your location whenever you log on to Snapchat. Um, and that, just makes like you're someone's able to access your location. That just makes it a lot more common for stalking to occur. occur or just thinking about how small of a campus Georgetown has, and that you're frequently coming into contact with people. Um, so it's a lot more common just when you add like physical proximity, and then also on top of that, just how much information is available on social media. Um, and if like if you block someone on one platform. And then they are able to contact you through another, like that is also a form of stalk. Like there's many forms of stalking um, that are just like so normalized Mm -hmm. in day-to-day life that people don't even think of it as toxic behavior or um, stalking behavior. Mm
1: -hmm. That's
2: That's so true. (laughs) The the normalization. Yes. That is the the problematic piece behind it and why I think the numbers are so low. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Because... When, some, when you block somebody, right, and then they, like, message you on Instagram, like, most people, because it's so normalized, are not thinking, like, actually, that's, like, a stalking behavior, right? Like, yeah. that is problematic. Like, if you block somebody on one platform, you obviously don't want to have co- contact with them. And so for them to then go to different platforms to continue contacting you, that's mm-hmm. not okay, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that is you know one of the things i see in my office so often is for students who are being stalked they're they're saying things to me like well like it's not that bad or like yeah. is it really bad enough to be stalking right like they have this vision mm-hmm. of you know stock media yeah, yeah it's right again but that media like people leaving notes on your your car which like obviously georgetown's different with car situations but you know what <laughs> we, you know what i mean like like they, they picture it like somebody like lurking in the shadows yeah. not necessarily somebody continually contacting you despite being blocked on multiple platforms
0: yeah i completely agree Britt. that the normally well the like depiction of stalking in like tv shows and movies and books like it makes it easy for actions that by definition are stalking to get overlooked especially when they're being so normalized um, and increasingly normalized as social media progresses so um and then like further drawing upon a lot of feedback we get from consultations, I have a collection of some common myths about sexual assault, as well as some frequently asked questions I would love to go through with you both. Um, so first, I think a myth that sometimes comes up is that if someone was sexually assaulted, they would have fought back um, or they would have been distraught in the situation. So how would, how would you respond to that myth?
2: Yeah, that's a great, a a great question. And and one that does come up quite a bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, even with my in my office with survivors who have have just experienced um, sexual violence or sexual assault, that comes up for them too, right? Um, Like, Wait, but why? Why did I not act in the way that I thought right. I would act when this happened? Um, and it's because, in a in a violent situation, um, our body has has mechanisms to survive, right? And so there is the flight flight freeze fawn response system, um, and I, you know I kind of think about it. If we even think about from like a biological perspective like if, if we even go back like a I don't know a ton of years if we were like to see maybe like a bear like we're not going to fight a bear because the bear is going to like kill you and you're going to be dead right we're not going to like run away from a bear because the bear is going to chase you and then kill you and you're also going to be dead and so what, what you actually do is you freeze um and so many survivors experience the same freeze response system. And they experience this tonic immobility where they're actually unable to fight back. And I want to be clear here, it's not that this is a choice. So it's not that um, a survivor is, you know, sitting there thinking, you know, I wonder which response system should I choose. Yeah. That's not what's happening here. For me to talk to you right now, Esme, like on this podcast, it's taking me a half of a second um, to communicate, to think through what I'm going to say, and then to say it, right? This response system, it activates in 1 20th of a second. So in 1 of a second, your body decides, how am I going to get through this? What is the best way for me to just. this to survive this situation, and so that's what happens. And so, when we think about you know that myth that like, why didn't somebody fight back or 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 however they're behaving doesn't seem aligned with um, what I would expect, it's because there is a, a lack of education around the neurobiology of trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Right. <clears throat> right, and you know we also think about. Um, even like when we look at data, you know, um, the National Sexual Assault Resource Center um, actually came out with data a couple years ago that said, you know, um, I mean, so actually it probably should be redone again. But eight out of ten cases of rape, um, the person knew who was sexually assaulting them. Um, so we think about that in the perspective of like when a survivor. Um, knows their perpetrator as well like it's not just a stranger in an alleyway that also complicates feelings that complicates how they protect themselves sometimes if they are thinking about like well I don't want to do what I normally do to protect myself like maybe run you know because I love this person Um, and so um, there's also that aspect of it which um, brings us to also think about like why it's so important that like when we asking certain questions or suggesting things like well why didn't you fight back or um self-defense you should take those um classes so that you're able to protect yourself um because that's extremely harmful and that's really incorrect of how um you know even like how survivors are able to survive sexual assault
0: yeah um and I love that you brought up the like why didn't you fight back or those questions that come up and the wording of that um, to me echoes a lot of like victim blaming culture and rape culture and that it completely shifts all of the blame from the, per- it shifts mm-hmm. the attention and shifts the blame from the perpetrator to the survivor. Like why, why didn't you do more? Like why didn't you fight back? Mm-hmm. Um, and that also like just the language and how we talk about sexual violence on a daily basis is very rooted in victim blame, victim blaming mm-hmm. culture and how it's really important to recognize that. Um, and then even when you were speaking, Brett, about talking to survivors in your office and how often it's even because of victim blaming culture and how this is presented in the media and presented to us in a day-to-day life, how, when for a survivor, looking back, like thinking back on what happened, they even can try to shift the blame. They might even try to shift the blame towards themselves. Like, why didn't I do this rather than why, why did this person do this to me? Mm. Like shift, like. It can even happen to them, like self-blaming, victim-blaming themselves. Like it, it's all inherent in the day-to-day language and how we talk about this. So mention that as well. Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. And then to the second part of your question, I'll just touch on, on quickly of like, you know, why isn't somebody maybe crying or distraught? Yeah. They have a vision of what they, they should look like again, they're surviving the best way they can, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I have been with, with survivors shortly after, um, you know, sexual assault has occurred and, and the, the range is everything from what you picture on media Mm -hmm. to laughing at friends on the hospital TV, Mm -hmm. to being really numb, to, uh, being shut down. Yeah. Right. Like, like all, like there is no right way to respond. There's no right way to feel like however you're responding. Um, is okay, and it's enough, and, and you're doing a really good job. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Spe- thinking
0: of, speaking of victim blaming, um, this reminds me of another myth that often comes up in facilitations around going back to the cycle of abuse and that if someone was in a violent relationship, whatever that may look like, um,
1: if it was really that bad, why wouldn't they leave? So that's a very interesting um question especially when we think about like for college students um you know we we think about, um, you know, leaving is the most dangerous time for a survivor. So um, it's also not uncommon for a survivor to hear um, things from their partner, you know, saying like they'll hurt themselves or they'll um, do something, you know, if the person does leave. And so a lot of times this can bring on guilt, it can bring on shame, it can bring on a lot of um, feelings of just discomfort as well, being like not knowing if they're okay to leave, um, and it's also okay, or no, okay, sorry, it's also important to name, um, that this can be in any type of relationship, so, like, again, like, just like the cycle abuse can be in those relationships. um, It can also be a violent situation where, um, you know, if you pressure somebody to leave right away, it can be very harmful. Um, It can cause a lot more um, issues and challenges for the survivor to leave. And so a lot of times when we are helping or loving or supporting whatever you wanna fill in the blank um, of a loved one going through some type of violent relationship, it's so important to um, be able to meet them where they are and to also offer um, tangible ways to support. So even if yeah. it's just going to dinner with them so they're not alone um, or making sure that you call at a certain time so they can you know, have time to talk or process. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting and co- complicated and delicate situation a lot of times.
0: Yeah, um, and I love that you tied it into how to like support and be there for someone um, who might be in like going through the cycle of abuse with a partner, um, whatever that may look like. And that directly, like how does that, what does that look like on a college campus? Like how can someone be there for a friend if they might identify signs of an abusive relationship or the cycle of abuse in the relationship that one of their friends may be in? Like how does someone, what resources are available to support
1: someone on campus? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Honestly, there are an array of resources at Georgetown on campus, but there's also some challenges and barriers, right? Um, So we think about um, there's health education services where like um, Britt and I are from, there's also student conduct, there's Title IX, the Student Health Center, um, there's CAPS, um, which is our counseling center, ordained clergy on campus. Um, and one thing to remember as we go into, basically we're all like re-entering to Georgetown <laughs> in a couple of weeks. Um, one thing to remember is there's also a burden of these systems, right? So um, the not all these resources are one size fit all. Not all these resources can um, have capacity to take as many people and as help as many people as we can. So it's also important to like advocate for those as well. So like, if you see something missing um, at Georgetown, yeah. please like, Please it, advocate. advocate. <laughs> Please
2: advocate.
1: Exactly. I'm like I don't have to tell
2: his name. Nice, she knows. As you know. <laughs> like, can see, goes a long way, and and helps us also better meet the needs of the students who are coming. Yeah. To this. And, and I want students to know, like, who are incoming that that these resources, they, they do they do come um, with all the things that, that Val mentioned, but they, they there are some things that they can provide. And just, just so students do know what's out there and what's available, right? There's no contact orders um, yeah. that can be put in place. There's interim measures. So if, if something has happened and you're now struggling academically, right? We can talk to your Dean. We can make sure you get the support and resources you need, uh, mm-hmm. housing assistance, Safety planning, connection to medical care, discussing reporting options—if that's something that is is important to you and, and part of your healing—that that reporting options are available, and so we can talk with students about what those are. Um, and, and I think that and knowing what the resources are can be really helpful for for students and for survivors to figure out like what is best for me what is the best place for me to start Mm -hmm. and and we also always do say though across the board if you're not sure a confidential place you know is is the first step um, because a confidential place can protect your privacy and your confidentiality to the highest degree
0: Mm -hmm. yeah Okay, I have a comment and then a question. Um, but first, also, I'm not sure if you, either, I don't think Brent, you mentioned this, but maybe Val mentioned it and I just missed it. So correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but also just as a student, this is something that I didn't realize at the beginning, but faculty are just a huge resource mm. outside of academic reasons as well. Um, like this Georgetown as an institution, like we really emphasize going to office hours and asking your professors for help if you need it. Um, But it's really only presented in an academic sense, and that faculty are an academic resource to you, but they're also, like, their resources to you just in general, whatever that may look like, if you are going, if you need mental health support, if you, like, a family member is going through some, like, if you're going through a family um, emergency, like, you can really go to faculty with whatever it may be, so just like, I just want to emphasize that they're a resource, just not just in an academic sense. Um, and then Britt, you mentioned uh, no contact orders. Could you quickly define what a non-contact order is and what exactly, like what, a,
2: what that is? Yeah, yes, of course, so um, no contact orders like this would go through uh, the student conduct process, so they are such a great resource um, for students who are interested in this option, Um, but this this basically is a. contract in a sense that that two parties will not continue to engage in contact with each other uh this isn't punishment in any nature so this isn't something that um you know is a is a sanction where somebody's going to get in trouble this is a uh contract put in place to say these two parties won't interact. Maybe there, maybe there was an assault that occurred, or stalking, or um, some type of partner violence, and that if that then is violated, that is then where now we're violating the contract, um, and where there could be sanctions and there could be um, some other um, reprimands that kind of come after that piece. But but the initial no contact order. Uh, doesn't have uh, that, that same, that same, I don't know, like investigation, like there's no investigation to get a no contact order. Uh, this is when one party says, hey, for, for whatever reason, um, I, I request a no contact order against this person, this party. Um, and it just, it provides this layer of, of safety and another layer of support for, for students. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Thank,
2: thank you for walking through that.
0: Um, And then also just on the topic of resources at Georgetown, we have three levels of resources. Um, So I know they are confidential, semi-confidential, and then non-confidential. What do those different terms mean? What types of resources are confidential, -confidential, semi-confidential, non-confidential? How does someone know, like how should someone choose what type of resource they're seeking based off of the confidentiality level?
1: So I think it's um, important to just name, um, we have since we have three levels and it doesn't mean that one resource is better than the other. Um, It really is depending on what you're looking for, um, what you feel comfortable with um, and also just where you would like to start. So I'll start off with just confidential. Um, This is basically your information about um, the incident or whatever you're sharing will not be shared. Um, So with anybody outside of um, that person you're talking to. So unless you are at harm to yourself, to others, um, or if there's child abuse involved, um, we will not send like a report to Title IX. Um, And so you will not be contacted by like a Title IX coordinator. Um, And then these services include, um, so health education services, like where Britt and I are, CAPS, which is the counseling center, student health center, and then ordained clergy acting in their pastoral roles on campus.
2: Yeah, and then we have semi-confidential, which this is the one that there's always a ton of questions about um, because it's this in between, right? And so with this type of of semi-confidentiality, non-identifying information about the incident will be shared with the Title IX coordinator. However, the person will not be contacted. There is no... You know investigation or any of that, that that is associated it's just non-identifying information um, is what was what is reported and so this will be um, this includes resources like the women's center the lgbtq resource center and then people in campus ministry um, campus ministry staff that would be them in the semi-confidential role mm-hmm.
1: And then for non-confidential, um, information is shared to the Title IX uh, coordinator. So um, basically the next steps after that is the Title IX coordinator will email you and provide you some information about resources and support on campus. Um, you actually don't even have to respond. Um, this is an email you can get, you can just pass right over, or, or you can decide to respond if you like. Um, so this is, um, this. Uh, Non-confidential level all includes like the Title IX coordinator, um, student conduct, GUPD, and uh, faculty, staff, RAs. Um, So again, it doesn't mean that like an investigation is going to start. It just means that there's a report sent to Title IX and they'll reach out. Um, and honestly with these levels, it really depends what you're looking for, but just as Britt was saying before, um, if you're not sure where to start, confidential is usually the best resource, um, because you can get those referrals, resources, support, and also, um, kind of like next steps, you know, we can help you out with like figuring out what you would like to do. Yeah.
0: And also just as a reminder, you can always ask, um, whoever you're speaking to what their confidentiality level is just to be sure before you share anything. Um, and then Val, you, you already kind of started talking about this um, and already kind of outlined a report, but just to quickly go over it again, what what exactly is the difference between a report and an investigation? This is a question we get all of, the, like we probably get this question at in every single
1: facilitation that <laughs>
0: state Leads like it is the number one asked question. Um, so what is a report versus what is an investigation?
1: Yeah. Do you want to take, I'll take report. And then do you want to explain investigation? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Yeah. So um, a report is, that's basically um, when you share with somebody who is of a non-confidential resource. Um, They will then make a report to Title IX. Um, It basically just has information on there about the incident um, and your information. And then Title IX will reach out, um, like I said, via email. It's um, not invasive at all. They don't give you a call or anything, Um, but they will just uh, reach out to you, give you some uh, resources and referrals, and then you can make the decision whether to move forward with them or to move forward with a different resource.
2: Mm Yeah. And so an investigation would be then the next step if the survivor is, is interested. So at Georgetown, you know, it's our commitment to be survivor led. And so um, the the next piece would be if a survivor is like, actually that feels really like the next step I want to take. I want there to be an investigation. I want some um, sort of accountability to potentially occur. And so what would happen is a formal complaint would be made, right? So that's when we go from a report to um, kind of as we're, we're terming it in this conversation and investigation, you know, and Samantha Berner from Title IX, she can speak to this process in such a more elaborate way, <laughs> which also, by the way, they do informational sessions. So if you're yeah. like, hey, I want to be, you know, talked through the entire process, please reach out for support mm-hmm. and to, to get those step-by-step. So, you know, we have limited time here today to be able to walk through. And we also don't have all of our experts with us, but- we can, you know, talk through it in our offices individually more step-by-step, um, step, and also Title IX can provide that resource. So, low caveat to throw out there. <laughs> but, you know, at this point, a formal complaint is made, and so that starts um, with the Office of Student Conduct is, is kind of who the, the formal complaint process goes, like where the formal complaint is made. And then, based on that, it's handed over to an investigator in Title IX. Title IX nine they they do the investigating, right? They're interviewing people. They're talking to people who um, maybe witnessed the event or who are there or could speak to what they know. Um, And they gather all this information and then they gather all this data. um, And then they give that back to student conduct. And then student conduct pulls together a hearing panel in order to... um, Decide whether preponderance of evidence has occurred. And so that's like also a big word that often nobody knows what that means. Um, but when we think about like the criminal justice system, that is, you know, beyond reasonable doubt that this thing happened. For preponderance of evidence, it's just this is more likely than not that this incident occurred. And so it's the hearing panel's job to say, hey, is, th- is this more likely than not that this thing happened, that this incident occurred? And then based on, you know, the policies, what policies were violated, um, if somebody's found responsible, that's, you know, the terminology terminology that's used, then some sanctions are created. And so that can, you know, range and include a whole um, host of options. Um, but that that's where then uh kind of what we think about that accountability piece could look like um and sanctions are then if somebody's found responsible provided to to the responding student and in those appeal process there's all these other pieces that that are to um that go to that piece um and go to the process but that's a shortened overview well thank you for going like walking through what that looks like
0: Um, And then next, this question is probably our next most asked question besides um, a report versus investigation, but if someone discloses to you, what do you do? How do you receive support for yourself? How do you receive support? Like, how do you provide support for whoever disclosed to you? Like, what, what steps, what recommendations
2: do you have for a student going through this? Yeah, so you know, start with believing, believing the survivor. You know, we know that very, 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 very few reports are ever found to be false. And so I know sometimes those questions come up of like that we talked about earlier: why didn't this happen? This doesn't look like it does on TV. So sometimes people struggle with believing survivors, and so you know we'd encourage everyone to start with believing survivors, um, you know, other things that right off the bat come to mind for me, you know, is to fight the urge to do something. So you're with somebody and, you know, something horrible has occurred, right? Anytime these things have happened, like they're not okay. And um, it's trauma, it's trauma that's happened. Yeah. And so we have this like urge in this, like, you know, warrior mentality we're like we have to like do something it's not our job to decide what is best for the survivor right like yeah. Yeah. when we're with somebody when a friend or you know a co-worker or somebody we love tells us this thing happened to them it, it it's their job to decide what 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 is best for them um, somebody's power and their agency was just taken away from them And so we don't want to take away more power by deciding what is best for them. Yeah. You know, I think that that also comes to mind. We talked about confidentiality or earlier letting people know if you do like have a uh, you know a mandate to report what that looks like you know if you do ensuring privacy but letting them know you know here's what my confidentiality status looks like like maybe when i'm wearing my ra hat um here is here's what i need to do um if you disclose this to me, right? And so like being honest and upfront about about those those things, allowing the survivor to take the lead whenever possible, supporting decisions they make, Um, even if you disagree, right? Kind of to that, like fight the urge to do something. They are experts on themselves and what is going to aid in their healing process. And so we really want to Empower them to make the decision that is best for them. Mm. What other thoughts do you you all have? Like any any things that you know? Those were some that immediate came to my mind. But what comes to your mind? I just want to echo what you said about
0: believing survivors and empowering survivors. And just I don't think that like believing survivors like we can't say that enough. Like that's just mm-hmm. I just really want to emphasize that. Um, and then just also like you, like, like you talked about and hinted at just communicating to a survivor that it's not their fault. Like we talked about this earlier, but, um, really emphasizing that you're there for them in whatever capacity they need and that you'll like, you'll be there for them. Um, and that you want to support them and like, you want to support them in what's best for them and that like you're a support, res- you're a resource and a support system for them but also the importance of also recognizing your own barriers and when it might be too much for you to be a support system for them. And that you also like prioritize your own mental health as well and recognizing Mm -hmm. when it's important to take a
2: step back. Yeah. Yeah. Those Mm -hmm. are all great thoughts. Um, You know, and I think there's always like, what do I say? What do I not say? Like that that kind of like dilemma um, that, that comes up and we get asked a lot. Um, you know, I think some things you can say is like, I just, I believe you. Thanks yeah. for sharing this with me um, trying to avoid those questions that we've talked about earlier in this conversation that, that could, even if you don't mean them in that way, they could come across as victim blaming, right? Like, why didn't you do this? Or like, how much were you drinking? Or like, I told you not to hang out with that person or to keep seeing them, right? Like those can often come across as really victim blaming. So avoiding those. Um, and one thing I always say, if you don't know what to say, that's okay. And you can actually just say, Hey, I'm not sure what to say right now, but I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's perfect. Like that is a incredible empathetic response because you can be shocked. You can have your own feelings that come up from this and, and we can talk a little bit, maybe Val can start speaking to like what those, those look like, but as you have your own feelings come up, or maybe you're shocked or you're in disbelief, um, you may not know what to say. And so if you're like, oh no, I forgot everything I learned on the podcast. I forgot everything I learned at bystander training. Like I have nothing. Um, That's okay. Just say, hey, I'm not sure what to do in this moment. I'm not sure what to say, but like, wow, thank you so much for trusting me with this.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, And, you know, and a lot of feelings can come up. I think like that's something we don't, we, I feel like we've been starting to talk about a lot more, especially after 2020, um, with like people that support others, um, but, um, we think about essential workers, we think about people that work straight through the pandemic, you know, on site, you know, things like that, and so it's kind of the same thing in the sense of, like, when we're taking care of others, um, you know, we can also feel many different emotions, and we can feel, um, like, we're not doing enough, we can feel angry, we can feel sad, um, anxious, fearful. You know, there's so many different things we can feel. Um, and I think a lot of times we need to understand that um, like, say, if we're angry, we could be angry at the person who did this to our friend. Um, we can be angry that um, our friend didn't tell us sooner. Um, we could be like, what the heck? I thought we were best friends. Like, why did not you tell me right away? Um, you said this happened a year ago. Um, you know, we could be angry that this even happened at all. Um, maybe it was, you know, you introduced people to each other and that's, you know, a result of what happened. That doesn't mean it's your fault. Um, and it doesn't mean that um, you could have done anything different. Um, that's not again. That's not how you know violence works. Um, and then also with um, you know we can also be afraid to say the wrong thing, and that's okay. That's like what Britt was saying. You know, you can always say, "I'm not sure even what to say right now," um, but I just know that I'm here, or please just know that I'm here, and please know that there's help. You know that there you can get support. Um, which I think is the most important thing, you know, to remember. There's support for that person, but there's also support um, for you as well.
2: Yeah, and so with all these feelings that you may be feeling, which are normal, are totally normal, um, you need to prioritize your own self care. So if you're supporting somebody who has just experienced a, a sexual violence part, going through partner violence, stalking, any of those things, any traumatic event, honestly. It, it can be heavy, it can be heavy for you. And so we wanna make sure that students know that like they deserve support too. You know, our office provides support to, to survivors, friends to, um, loved ones who care about somebody, we can be a place to process and to help connect to resources, give, you know, guidance or suggestions that might be helpful. Um, And really thinking about prioritizing self-care. You know, often when we leave these situations, whether we're supporting somebody as a professional or a friend, um, we'll feel like things are unfinished. And that's, also really normal I mean Val and I feel that way often right because Mm -hmm. the only thing that would make this feel unfinished or like we did enough is if the thing didn't happen Um, but it did and so just knowing that that's normal um, leaning on your own mental health support therapy is fantastic um getting that professional support, like you deserve that too, right? Like this impacts your emotional health and you're allowed to name that and, and ask and receive that support. Um, Same with, you know, boundaries, right? Like Hmm. boundaries are hard. They're so hard because we want to show up and show up well for someone. Um, However, it's also okay to have limits, right? Like we can't pour from empty cups. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually heard an analogy that I really liked that basically was like, not only can you not pour from an empty cup, but your cup should actually always be full and you should mm-hmm. have a side cup next to the cup that when your cup is so full that it overflows into that cup and that's the cup you pour from. Mm-hmm. And It looks much better with like my hand motions that you might not be able to get all the way through, um, the podcast platform, but all of that to say that, um, we need to make sure that we're okay. And that's actually how we best show up for other people. And so having boundaries and setting limits, right? Like a boundary can look like, you know, saying something like, Hey Val, you know, I actually, my, I'm at capacity today for emotions. And so I I, I want to hear more about your story. I really care about it. Um, but today, could I just support you by watching a comedy movie with you or like going to dinner? Um, I just, uh, I'm completely filled up and I I really wanna be there for you and I love you and I care about you. And so like, would that be okay if I, you know, helped you study for your homework, you know, tonight? Like, could we do that? Um, so you could still show up and instead of thinking maybe even about what you can't do, you could present maybe what you can do. And that's a way to draw a boundary to say, I care about you. I want to show up for you well, but I also need to show up for me too. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Britt. I think like um, a lot of times too, some of us may have grown up with like the idea of boundaries being a negative thing. Um, Like that it's like we're trying to keep people out or we're trying to say like, you know, we don't want anybody to help us or, you know, whatever that may look like. Um, But we really, I don't know. um, I think this is something we talk about a lot in our department, but then also um, I heard a really, um, pretty like home about this the other day, but they basically described how like boundaries shouldn't be um, like it shouldn't be like an electric fence where it's like hurting people to stay out, it should actually be like almost like a, a magical like line aura around you that it's just like my space and my boundaries are sacred and I want to be able to show up for you and myself and I think that's something that totally goes in hand in hand with like the cup you know we think about like we have to be almost overflowing in order to really like support each other and ourselves.
2: Yeah I love that and use your own coping skills right mm-hmm. like which is what we all got to keep developing our toolkit and wow has everybody's been wrecked in 2020 because what we thought were like our go-to's like getting our nails done which like also doesn't have to be something you buy but like that would be one that would be mine like i love a good pedicure um what, what has shifted? What has changed? Like, what are the things that fill you up? Maybe it's meditation or yoga or, you know, talking to a friend or some type of body movement you enjoy, right? Like continually assessing where's my cup at and what are the things that help fill it up?
1: Yeah. I I also love to add, um, you know, once you're able to get on campus and like start making those connections and like those friendships uh one of the things that I really appreciate with my support system when it comes to self-care is also just naming when I might need like a um almost like a, like a pick-me-up or like a care, like a special care kind of um, guideline for, you know, say if I know October is gonna always be a really busy month because maybe, um, I don't know, maybe there's a lot of anniversaries of good and bad things. And maybe there's also like just a lot of work for school. Um, maybe that could be something where it's like, hey, we get together and it's like, you know, can you just check on me every now and then in October? Like, be like, no, really, how are you doing? Like, do we need to sit down and talk? Do we need to like, do you need to take a nap? Um, also, please rest. Um, I know there's going to be a ton of people telling you as we re-enter Georgetown um, that things are back to normal, you have to get back to normal, you have to start getting, uh, you know, smashed and like with all these deadlines, um, and I want to encourage you to resist um, the urge to just go back to quote unquote normal um, and to just not take pauses, not take breaks and to be burnt out um, for the next four years or how many years you may have at Georgetown left um, because that is something we need to remind ourselves. Um, in the pandemic, we learned how much we need rest and how much um, that we do not get rest. So please prioritize that this year. Yeah.
0: And I thank you so much for mentioning that, especially us. Yes. <laughs> return to campus in the coming weeks, which is crazy to even think about that we're gonna be back in person in some capacity. Um, and just keeping an eye on time. Um, and I don't have any other further questions if either of you have any further questions or any further comments. Um, just wanted to wrap it up quickly. Um, first, thank you so much Fallon and Brett for coming on Safe Speaks. Um, thank you for all of the work that you do on Georgetown's campus. I can't thank you enough. Um, And then for all the listeners in the show notes, you can find links to the data from the 2019 sexual misconduct survey. Sorry, chipping up my words a little bit. Um, You can also find resources if you're in need of support. Uh, The transcript for this episode will also be below. And then if you wanna learn more about what SAPE is doing in our virtual environment, make sure to check us out on Instagram at GU underscore There you will see announcements about our programming as campus opens up again. Um, you'll also see information about SAFE applications that will open up on CabFair if anyone's interested in applying. And then you will also see announcements about future podcast episodes as they come out. Um, once again, thank you, Val and Brett, and thank you everyone for listening to this episode.